Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the definitive developers podcast in fantabulous Chelsea, Manhattan. I'm your host, Dave Anderson. With me today, we have our fantabulous producer, William Jeffries. Good to be here. <laughs> you got upgraded. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's fantabulous I'm today. I'm feeling fantabulous. Yeah. Today, we're going to be talking about end-to-end testing. Mm, yes, both ends, all Bo- the way. Yeah, both ends. One end being the beginning, and the other end being the end. The end <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it like that, you want to do testing on all the things. I think of it as like a top to bottom. You yeah, know, yeah, that's true. It's a top and bottom. It's like the top being the UI, and then the bottom being like I don't know, database or persistence layer. Yeah, we've already talked about end-to-end testing, where it's like the breadth of it, where you want to cover all the features. In your unit tests, <laughs> I'm just really confusing with this concept. <laughs> it's a but pyramid. We're, we're talking about... Time is a flat circle. <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers for the new season, please. <laughs> haven't yet watched... <laughs> I haven't seen any of it. I just like the phrase. It doesn't really, it doesn't really relate to end-to-end testing at all. <laughs> end-to-end testing is very linear. Yeah, that's you true. start at the beginning and you go to the end. We're, we're talking about writing code that's going to orchestrate actions that a user would take on a site in the browser itself. Driving that browser. Beep, Drive, beep. Driving the browser. All aboard. <laughs> Get your cookies in here. <laughs> and then actually hitting a database and making changes to the state of the database and all of the wonderful, beautiful complexity that arises from everything that you have to do to service a user (laughs) it's like all of the things that can break that's what makes it such a high value test is that it actually executes the entire stack anything that could break for an actual user gets tested by this one end-to-end test so what does it look like when an end-to-end test is is written well i think it depends on what you're writing it in right because like if you're using Cucumber and you're using Gherkin syntax, it's going to look very different than if you're just using RSpec. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. So I guess with, with RSpec, much like uh, other testing frameworks that you might use in JavaScript that are kind of BDD flavored, you would have like nested blocks that have some text that describes what they are. And you might end up with some kind of, some kind of a thing that looks like a functional spec. How is Gherkin different from from that yeah i I think with gherkin you're taking an extra step and you're taking the time to write out what it is that your test does in plain english given i am a admin when i go on go to my home page then i see the admin panel it's not really code it's english and then under the hood you have to implement definitions for each one of those steps and it's all in one place like you just put all those definitions in a text file somewhere. Yeah. You have to figure out how to organize your step definitions, which is always a nightmare. (laughs) So like the unification of those step definitions is separate from the actual like, yeah, you get your like feature file and then the feature file has a collection of scenarios in it. Mm -hmm. And then each one of those scenarios describes a flow through the browser uh, assuming it's a browser that you're testing, which I mean, as web developers, that's kind of what we're familiar with. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's just a way to write a test. So you could write it for even like a unit of code, like a class 
or some kind of uh, API. Yeah, that, yeah. it sounds <laughs> it literally insane to do a unit test with <laughs> Gherkin syntax. <It's> like... <laughs> so I guess I'd be doing it wrong if I was using it to unit test you, my code. Yeah, I mean, it would technically run. It would work. <laughs> the code would compile. <laughs> and I'd have a test, which is maybe better than not having a test. That's true. Yeah. That's true. So you'd be coming out ahead in that sense, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of overhead to it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a ton of overhead. You have to maintain that extra code. You have to maintain English, which is harder to maintain than regular code. Yeah. And editors are not built for that. Yeah. I've not, I've not worked much with Gherkin syntax. I, I've worked on projects that have it, but then mainly I've, I've kind of, mainly lived around the unit testing and written those kind of tests yeah uh, and let the intent tests like do their own thing but like do, do you actually need to have the exact same string in your definition file as you have like I don't know what the right word is even for it like in in your in your feature file yeah your, your feature fe- yeah. file the feature file has to match the step definition verbatim unless you're using yeah I mean you can do regex and like string pattern matching stuff so, like, if you wanted to have a step definition that's as a as an admin and as a customer and as a super user, like, you could have one step and then you could regex Just for, for each one out. of those things. Yeah, and then have, like, a local variable that is the word, like, customer or admin or super user or whatever. And then you could dynamically change the behavior of that one step if you wanted to refactor and reuse your step. It sounds super powerful. Yeah, definitely. It's a great. I mean, it's very flexible. I think you have to ask yourself why you want this tool, though, because yeah, I think it gets used for the wrong reasons often. Yeah, like what are the outcomes? That that's really what why we should be writing code. Like we should be writing code, not just to write code. I mean, it's it is fun, <laughs> <laughs> but we also gotta get paid. That's true. We gotta get paid. Okay. <laughs> well, they'll, they'll pay you even if it doesn't do so. Well, maybe not, but. Yeah, I, I guess like the actual end result that you're hoping to have is that you want to know that your your application's working in a real context. Yeah, and you can get that without Gherkin, like without that extra English syntax. I think the value you get out of it is mostly from defining terms. It's like. By forcing yourself to express it in English, it forces you to verbalize exactly what it is that you want the app to do. And then now you have actual domain language in your head. And so when you go to write the code, it ends up much more closely modeling your domain. You get that domain driven design kind of Mm -hmm. like being, yeah. So if, if you have like, if you come to it with a sense of discipline, then you can, you can get that domain driven flavor. I suppose you could also like end up with like when like language that doesn't match at all and it's just like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, I, I can see the benefit of that. Like spending the time to think about the scenarios and what the actual users' cases are, like the actual stories. Because it, it, a style that you can write a story in is given this when the other thing, then I expect this thing. Like, like as, as a user, given that I'm a user. <laughs> when I do this, then I expect something awesome to happen. Yeah. And it does, I think, ease communication with product because you can point to a feature file and say, look, this is exactly what it does in plain English. Like this paragraph will tell you the actual behavior of the app. I promise it is programmatically enforced. I've heard 
I've heard like uh, tell of the idea of you know a product manager or a business analyst who will write Gherkin files yeah, for that's you. A, that's a nightmare. That's a disaster. <laughs> Don't ever do that. <laughs> that's, that's a trap. <laughs> yeah. So it's like it's it's an idea, but maybe you know it's still it's still programmatic. So right. I mean, they're just going to write the wrong. They're just going to write it wrong. They're going to forget about really important steps. They're going to make crazy assumptions that are really hard to program around. Like you you can't hand over that part of the i mean that's that's code it goes in the code base like you should collaborate i think actually it's really helpful for collaborating with product because you can write out what the app is going to do with them right and it's like they can pair with you because they can read the code that you're writing because it's english most most yeah. product managers are pretty good at like expressing <laughs> yeah. things verbally and in, in written form <laughs> yeah yeah and it makes it much easier for them to point out things that are missing i i find it's really helpful to collaborate with qa actually Mm-hmm. when you're writing those because they'll talk about edge cases that even product was not aware of especially if they're like well maybe maybe not especially but like even even the case if they're like manual qa if if they're like just going and and banging on this page uh yeah yeah they're used to they, they know all of the ways to break things <laughs> right it's really interesting pairing with some people with that kind of skill set because like you know, you work on a feature and you're like, oh, yeah, I really nailed this. <laughs> and then you hand it over to someone like that. I, there, there was there was someone recently I worked with that was just really bang on great, great QA. Hmm. <laughs> and like, they just tore my feature apart. They're like, oh, no. Nope. And I'm like, oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Okay. I got, I'm doing math. So I guess I should have thought, of, okay, fine. I'll do it all over again. <laughs> Yeah. What happens uh, if we put in a negative number? Don't do that. Back <laughs> off. Get away from the keyboard. <laughs> no user will ever try that. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we've talked about some some great benefits of this, like some collaboration that we can have and some more assurances that our system is behaving as we want it to and we have all the features down. What are some things that, that kind of go wrong or annoy you about Oh my God. So many things. So many. Well, I don't know where to start. (laughs) (laughs) Organizing that code is really hard. Step definitions in particular are really hard to organize. Yeah. They seem so atomic, like by by themselves, like they don't, they may not have as much meaning. Right. And then you try and reuse them and then you find that a word that seems like it means just one thing actually means a very different thing in another context. English. (laughs) Yeah. English is not like code, turns out. I mean, there's a lot of weird browser stuff that happens. Oh, yeah. Browsers are weird. Yeah, browsers are very weird. And you're driving a browser with a piece of software that is probably written in a different language from the one that you're programming in. It's like it's shelling out to it in kind of an asynchronous way, right? Like you're you're loading a web page asynchronously. Right, yeah. You have to have a web server serving your app, and then you have to have another server like driving a browser which may be on an entirely separate machine there's a lot of moving parts yeah and then browsers are just often non-deterministic like they're making a bunch of asynchronous calls when they're loading the page if you have a front end if you have a like a single page app and there's a lot of javascript a lot of times things load in a different order every time you refresh the page yeah so I, 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 was, I was looking at some tweets the other day about like react the like the react framework and uh they're talking about how there are not guarantees about certain aspects of behavior of a render. Like something may happen one time 
multiple times or not at all. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what? Wait. This is not how computers are supposed to work. <laughs> it's quantum. Yeah. I mean, the other day I ran into a problem where a test was flaking because we were getting a timeout. But when we watched it, the page appeared to load just fine. Hmm. And it only happened like, I don't know, maybe one out of a half dozen test runs, it would fail because of a timeout. And we would look at the page and clearly it has loaded. It's been loaded for like 10 seconds. Okay. And then it times out. And so you were like debugging it. Even the headless browser, you were like... This was in a headed it. browser. This was oh, driving Chrome. One. Yeah. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And... Um, it turned out that there was one network request that the page was making that never resolved. It was like, it made, I don't know, a hundred network requests and all of them resolved, some of them unsuccessfully, but all of them resolved except for one, (laughs) which, you know, (laughs) occasionally just took like 30 seconds. And so the, you know, the browser would, you know, the connection would time out and we would get this timeout error. Even though the the user, even though, you even have though first from page. a user's perspective, it's like the entire UI is there and everything appears to be fine. And this could happen in production, and the UI could never get this one little piece of data. I, I mean, like, yeah, this is this just confused Selenium. It actually wasn't really a behavioral problem that affected any users. Uh-huh. It's just. Um, it broke the automated tests. It made them flaky. And tracking those kinds of weird browser bugs down is the kind of thing that I think drives engineers to abandon their unit, their end-to-end tests. How'd you fix it in the end? Did you, did you make it less brittle? No, we fixed the fixed the apps. <laughs> Everything loaded properly. Okay. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> why did that one request take like thirty seconds? This is like that's not performant enough. We have higher higher standards. Actually, I think we ended up just eliminating the call because it wasn't needed. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, I mean, you get to the point where your your tests are so flaky that people don't trust them anymore if you're not good about keeping up with that kind of thing. I mean, I, I think if you're going to have tests, they have to be accurate every time. Yeah, absolutely. If you get a test that fails for the wrong reason, you have to address that right away. Because mm-hmm. if you let that problem build, then by the time you have 10 different tests that are no longer accurate, they fail for the wrong reason or they pass for the wrong reason. Now you've undermined the confidence in the test suite to the point where people won't actually make decisions based off of it. And yeah. then now there's no point. Now you're maintaining code for no reason. That's true. And and also, like I guess if you do figure out what the source of flakiness is, I have experienced this kind of an issue where there's like, an assumption that was incorrectly made about how the written the test was written like maybe the the fixture data was populating data with a sequence that if you added a record right before it in the sequence of all of your tests running it would cause it to fail some specific assumption was made it's possible that you made that assumption somewhere else so it might be a good opportunity to go and fix that assumption in other places or see like if there's a pattern of uh bad behavior that you or someone else had implemented yeah tests are good for that forcing refactoring so you talked a little bit before about like tests taking too much time that seems like a a a big challenge like if you discover these end-to-end tests and you're like oh my gosh they're so amazing i want to test everything i want to know that everything is working properly and don't want to throw any tests away ever I'm wondering how you balance that, like, want with right. the need for 
resolution of the test suite so you can run it repeatedly. I've seen companies take different strategies. I saw one company just delete all but one of their acceptance tests. They had like one end-to-end test that ran to make sure that the app actually worked at all. And like it was just, extremely fast. It was very fast. <laughs> very fast test suite, just the one test. They just reevaluated their priorities and they're like, you know what? Well, they looked at how many times a an end-to-end test had saved them from a production bug and they couldn't find it. <laughs> so they were like, I don't know if this is worth the investment. I mean, it costs it costs a lot, right? You know, right. you're paying engineers to write the things and maintain mm-hmm. the things because they break and you have to go and fix them. And then you're paying for the server costs to spin up a browser and run these automated tests with whatever cadence you're running them on. And then there's the time that it adds to whatever processes it's a part of, like if it's a part of deployment or if it's a part of merging. I mean, it sounds like it's a really useful thing to have, but you have to think really hard about like which ones, which which cases, which features you're really going to be safeguarding in this end-to-end test. Right. I've seen companies use tags to categorize tests. So, you know, you have your smoke tests. These are the ones that we're going to run in production and maybe hook up to an automated rollback. Oh, yeah. Those are super high value and they're going to be very fast and very cursory. It's like, is Mm -hmm. the feature even there? Not are all the edge cases covered? And you can't really do anything that's going to mess with the database too much because it's broad. And then, you know, you can tag things for a specific feature. So mm-hmm. if you want to test one specific feature, maybe that's the feature you're currently deploying or it's a particularly high value critical feature. Yeah. And then that, you can have like a regression tag for all of the stuff that you want to run when you want to see if anything is broken in a while. So we were talking a little bit before about how browsers can be a little bit unreliable. But if you're a publicly available website, you can't control which browser people are accessing it with. Uh, how do you just uh, decide which ones you do the tests with? Right. Yeah. Your browser support matrix. Which ones do you care about? I mean, hopefully you have analytics and you know what percentage of your users are on which platform. Uh, yeah. That always helps. Like kind of having an informed decision about that. Right. Because I mean, your user base might be really into Firefox or it might be a bunch of people who are stuck on corporate networks that restrict them to Internet Explorer 6 or yeah, something awful. Firefox 42. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it takes it takes a certain amount of boldness to just be like, we will not support anything but Chrome. Yeah. <laughs> Only the finest Chromes allowed on this website. <laughs> yeah, it's a great power move. I love that. Yeah. But they, they, so but it's a strong endorsement, too, of your favorite browser. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as a developer, I, I support it. Although, like, there are real financial implications of, you know, not supporting a browser, not supporting it well. Yeah, and if your platform gets to be less popular, if your browser gets to be less popular, then you could be missing out on major market share. Yeah, I, down the road. I, I've worked on, like, a, you know, e-commerce site where they had that kind of metrics. Like, they knew how many people were on those crusty IE platforms and they could do nothing about it. They oh, just so kept crusty. On, they kept on coming back. They wouldn't upgrade their browsers. But, like... We're cutting when, you off, man. <laughs> but then when there was a problem, like, with, with something that supported uh, or was, was needed on those older browsers, they actually saw, like, a financial impact because they were, tr- they were tracking it. They saw that conversions were down with this particular browser and it had a real impact on the bottom line they're like i guess it makes financial sense to support this crusty browser Mm, yeah that's sad that makes me sad when old browsers win like that 
<laughs> just get on the edge versions. <laughs> that that's another layer of com- complexity too, because like when when you're scripting, you're often doing it in a Linux environment, like with your headless browser. You know, only only the coolest toys. But then if if you're doing like IE eight or nine. Yeah, then you got to test with it. I mean, if you want an automated test and cover your full browser support matrix, including IE, then you're going to need a VM that can run Internet Explorer and a Selenium node that connects to it. Right, like actually having Windows somewhere in right. the browser somewhere. Huge pain. And I mean, it's not just limited to that, right? I mean, there's you can get really aggressive with your browser support matrix. I mean, what about operating system? Are we going to, I mean, are we including that? Are we talking about OS X and iOS and Android and this Windows is, and Linux? This like, is turning into a four-dimensional cube. This yeah. is no longer a matrix. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a yeah. t- it's a tesseract. Well, and then what What viewport widths are we talking about? Right? Oh, How many breakpoints do you geez. want? Is, yeah. <laughs> Are we talking about visual regressions now? I mean, I guess if you want to go there, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, normally people have designers will set, you know, specific breakpoints that they care most about, but in reality, they want responsive design. Like, any viewport is going to look at least not terrible. Right, yeah. Just pixel by pixel. But, you know, it's it's really hard to do visual regression testing. Like, there there aren't a lot of tools out there that do it well. Yeah, I haven't seen anything that I liked. Although there are some solutions out there. Yeah, I've 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 googled it a couple of times. There are some sassy things, uh, you know, s- software as a service, not things with a lot of attitude. <laughs> oh, that too. <laughs> not just not discounting the level of attitude that is provided by these services. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you have to pay money for those things because uh, it's a non-trivial problem. Yeah, it's an, and I don't think it's that high value of a problem, honestly. Like, the visual regressions that don't affect functionality are not the bugs that I'm scared of. Yeah. Like, fixing them is usually pretty trivial because you go in and you tweak some CSS. Users' experience is not that affected because they are generally able to come up with a workaround. Right. They're able to, if they're tenacious enough, they're able to get through and, you know, and overlook usually, your misshapen buttons. Yeah. And usually it's only in a certain browser or a certain viewport width or some particular combination of weird factors that are is better resolved by telling those people, like, upgrade your browser. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because it's good for you. It's good for you. There, and, there and, are zero-day vulnerabilities <laughs> out there, people. Really. And honestly, <laughs> if you're on IE6, you're used to the internet looking broken. <laughs> that's that's true actually if it looked normal then you'd be shocked <laughs> what how are all the buttons in the right position on this page I mean, it's so I strange think, i honestly think that people who are most strongly impacted by a visual regression are the people closest to you like the designers on your team <laughs> oh my god it's nails on chalkboard oh, <laughs> exactly. why is this shade we'll of red it's wanna... not in our style guide yeah they will slay you yeah <laughs> No, actually, for real, though, it would be great to hear a designer's perspective on all this because we are very biased as developers here. So if you are a designer and you want to be on the rabbit hole, hit us up at Radio Free Rabbit on Twitter. Yeah. And maybe we'll have you on the show. All right. Well, I think we, I think we learned a lot about end-to-end testing. Like, there's, there's a lot of aspects to it here. Some awesome in moderation. 
and some things that are a little bit more challenging, but overall very useful tool yeah. to have in your basket. Follow us now on Twitter at Radio Free Rabbit so we can keep the conversation going. Like what you hear? Give us a five-star review and help developers just like you find their way into the rabbit hole. And never miss an episode. Subscribe now however you listen to your favorite podcast. On behalf of our producer extraordinaire, William Jeffries, and our amazing host, Michael Nunez, who's out being a dad, and me, your host, Dave Anderson, thanks for listening to The Rabbit Hole.